We finished up chapter 6 last time uh, with a great deal of emphasis toward the end of the chapter on really believing and trusting God that He has us deeply in mind, He cares so much for us, that He is constantly aware of what's going on in our lives, and we need to have the faith, the trust, that we can depend upon Him for everything we need. So he says quite a bit there about anxiety and worry and uh, being fearful of various things. And of course, that goes through all aspects of our lives, not only on a normal situation, but even more so now as we see these things coming down upon us here at the end of the age. We need to come to trust God even more so with our very lives because there will be no protection anywhere except where God has chosen to protect those who will faithfully serve Him. And the time is fast coming upon us, as I think we all can very well see. Uh, Amazon owns Whole Foods, and I hear now that they are uh, preparing a chip for your hand so that you can go into Whole Foods and scan your hand rather than your credit card. And uh, New York's working on uh, this vaccine passport, as are other countries and other states, as, we've, uh, as I mentioned last week. So the mark of the beast is upon us. It is being introduced uh, as a medical thing, and I think I commented on that before. It says, by use of pharmacia, or pharmaceuticals, there in Revelation 18, that the whole world will be deceived. So he gave us a hint there that we could not perhaps recognize exactly what it meant until they started doing it to us. And right now, the whole world is being deceived by this uh, man-made virus that they've used to make us wear masks and become subservient to them. And now you're going to be able to wave your hand just like the Bible says, the mark of the beast. You can't buy and sell unless you have their mark in your hand or, or your forehead. And they're working on both. They didn't introduce it that way to start with. Uh, what is one of the greatest gods, if not the greatest god, of America today? Medical science, doctors. Every time you have a problem of any kind, you run to the doctor. The doctors have become a god high above the god in heaven, in our society. You better be careful about going to the doctors, because they are a false god. They've become that. Now, I know there are places in the scriptures that indicate that there are certain things you can do. Putting a fig poultice on a boil uh, was done once. And other things. But don't forget either that when Asa went to the doctors instead of to God, it's right there in Scripture, he died because he went to the doctors instead of to God. I don't know that that has always been enforced by God, but he did use certainly a very poignant moment to mention his feelings. 
he's pretty well let the world go until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom and then things will be done right. He is our healer. And though he is not and has not been healing, even in the way that I saw him doing it back in the 50s and 60s, he's backed off some because of the church's disobedience overall. But he's going to start again. And we need to be sure we have our loyalties in the right place. Doctors are not God. And they're using doctors right now, this very moment, to deceive the whole world into accepting the mark of the beast because they won't be able to buy and sell without it. And it will not be long until you cannot go in Walmart or Costco or wherever you like to go without having passport. And it won't be long after that till you cannot buy and sell at all without a chip in your hand or your forehead, apart from even a passport. I, I would say within two or three months, four, five, six at the most, you won't be able to get an airplane, period, without a vaccine passport. This thing is coming tornado upon us, being fulfilled in a way that most people who've read about the mark of the beast in Revelation will not recognize, and they're allowing medical science to deceive them. And it's by a means of pharmacia that they deceive the whole world. I hope we have eyes to see and ears to hear by now that that's what's going on. I've termed it the mask of the beast, which will soon turn into the mark of the beast. won't be long. Short transition. It's already established in coming. And they are going to use these shots they're giving to kill an awful lot of people. The first one isn't killing millions. It's killing thousands, though, and even tens of thousands. And it may be timed to wait a few months before what's really in there. Don't put it past them. <laughs> they want us dead. And I could use again, Gates is a really good example of that. He claims that he wants to see the population of the earth reduced by about 90%, along with a lot of politicians, Ted Turner and various ones. That's their goal. And then he claims he's providing a vaccine to save your life. Now, we can kill Bill Gates. The liar is the liar. <laughs> They're deceiving us. Anyway, I didn't mean to necessarily get off on that. But, uh, it's becoming more and more real every day as they introduce more and more. And we better be sure where our loyalties are and who we trust, because only God can save us. And he's promised to, if we will do what he says. That's an ironclad promise from him. But you can count on so you don't have to be fearful and worry and be frustrated. Just obey God and don't have anxious thoughts about what you'll wear, what you'll eat, whether you'll live or not. Just simple in a living God and you'll be fine.
That's all it takes. I say that all, but it's a tough chore. <laughs> it's hard for us to believe in God. We believe in God when it comes down to our health, our wealth, and our life. So let's get on into chapter 7 then with that again as a background for 6. Here he says, judge not or condemn not would fit just as well that you be not judged or condemned. And then he begins to explain what he means by that. For what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you put out, will be measured to you again. Now this goes right back to the Ten Commandments. Because the first four essentially have to do with our relationship with God. And the last six, our relationship with men. The Sabbath is kind of a bridge in there. Because we worship God on the Sabbath specifically, but at the same time, he gives instruction there about our relationship with men, that our maidservants and our manservants and various ones aren't to work, we're not to work. So it has to do with society itself, and that everything should shut down with man and open up with God. We forget about the things of men on the Sabbath. Don't work with them. Don't deal with them. Don't play with them. It's reserved for God. So it is kind of a, a balance in there, the fifth commandment. But the rest have to do with our relationship to man specifically and how we act toward them. So he divided the ten up into basically two, love God and love man. Now here, he's referring to that, and he'll say it more specifically a little later in the chapter. But he's saying right here that how you treat others, and how you think of others, and how you judge others, or condemn others, is how you will be treated by God. Now that's the second commandment in effect. We are commanded not to lie, to steal, to commit adultery, to covet, to all the things he says there in our relationship with mankind. That's the way we're to live. And he says, if you don't keep that second commandment and love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to be in the kingdom of God. And this is part of loving your neighbor as yourself. As you treat your neighbor, as you judge your neighbor, as you work with your neighbor, is exactly the same way God is going to work with you. So we need to each examine ourselves and say, how do I treat other people? Because God is going to treat me exactly the same way I treat them. Now that can be a scary thought. God will treat me exactly the way I treat each and every one of you and everybody else I come into contact with. Even road rage might fit in there. <laughs> you know, how do we interact with other people? How do we treat them? It's all he's talking about here. He said, he goes on and explains it further. Why do you behold the moat 
that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in your own eye. It's easy for us to see problems and mistakes in others, little things about them that we disapprove. And it might be something that's actually wrong with them, and it might be not something that's not. You might do something a right way, and they may do it a different way. Or you may do something a wrong way, and they do it the right way, but because it's not your way, it's wrong. Do you ever run across anybody anywhere that thought their, their way was the right way and nobody else was right but them? Kind of like daily, maybe. Why do people argue and fight? Because they're right and you're wrong. <laughs> That's why we argue. We'll fight over who's right and who's wrong. And it doesn't have to be over an important issue at all. But it becomes important because how you treat people in those little ways is how God, in little ways, is going to treat you. And in big ways. Both. So why are you going around looking for scum in somebody's eye? Why don't you turn around and see if you've got a log in your own? Now that's something that's not natural for us to do. We like to think well of ourselves. Now we may know... We may grasp and understand that we have a long way to go to be what we ought to be. That's why we struggle with this self-esteem thing all the time. Uh, we know God tells us we're not to think highly of ourselves, and yet the world tells us that we ought to think highly of ourselves. That you, I, am the most important person there is. And we buy that. And then we teach it to our kids. Oh, you're such a wonderful child. You're the best child. You have to be. You're my child. Couldn't be anything else. And then you have people of low esteem. And then they mistreat people trying to increase their esteem for themselves by putting other people down. Well, it goes all up and down and sideways and in a swirl in so many different directions, us dealing with ourselves and dealing with each other. So there's this maelstrom of emotion and discontent and frustration and judgment and putting people in pigeonholes that human beings just simply go through. It's our nature. So God says, now wait, let's back off. I'm going to treat you just like you treat everybody else. Ooh. Now, am I going to be condemning others? Am I going to be putting them down? Am I going to be talking negative about them and trying to find fault with them? Do I want God being negative about and trying to find fault with me? No, no, I don't. Because I know he'll find them. I don't want him even looking for him. <laughs> but if I try to find fault with somebody else, he says, that's exactly what I'm going to do with you. So we think we find fault with somebody, and then we repeat it to somebody else, and then everybody begins to say, well, yeah, I think you're right about them. So we condemn, not just personally, but as a group, somebody. 
And then God can condemn us as a group. That's why he spewed the church out. Is because we were not treating each other like we ought to have been or treating him the way we ought to have treated him. We were breaking the Ten Commandments by not loving God above everything and our neighbor as much as ourselves. And that's why we got spewed out. So consider your own problems before you try to find a fault or a problem with somebody else. Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye. We, we can be so helpful, you know. We could go to somebody and say, you know, you have a problem. Let me help you with that. We have to be careful. If somebody has an obvious problem, maybe we can be of help to them more by praying for them than any other way. More by doing what we can to help them in whatever way we can rather than pointing out their problem. You know, God is working with them. And have you ever noticed that God has the capacity to point out to you your problem? He, he is adept at it. He can punish us. He can put trials on us, tests on us. He, he knows every one of our problems. There's not one that he doesn't know about. And he has the ability to go about it in the right way. He knows how to be patient when patience is needed. He knows how to be severe when severity is needed. He knows how to show kindness and affection when it's needed. And he knows when to spank our bottoms when we need it. He, he's, he's all the above. So why do we have to straighten it out? Why can't we say, Father, I think I see something haywire there with somebody. But it's not my judgment. You know, who am I to say? i got enough problems of my own. Beams in my own eye. But if there's a problem there that I think I'm seeing, I want that person in your kingdom, would you help them see what they need to see? See how easy that is? Ask God to help. At the same time, not condemning or putting down in your own mind. Because that is our natural, easy tendency. We condemn each other. We judge each other, we evaluate each other. It's, it's as human as human gets. When you first meet someone, what do you begin to do? You'll evaluate their height, you'll evaluate their width, you'll evaluate whether they stand up straight or not, you'll evaluate whether they look you in the eye or look down, you'll evaluate all kinds of things. You'll try to figure out how smart they are or how dumb they are. Uh, you know, you'll, what kind of personality do they have? It is a warm, easygoing personality, or is it an uptight type of person? Uh, high strung, maybe? All kinds of things 
Those are just a few that come to mind. You begin to evaluate someone the moment you lay eyes on them for the first time. Now, is that evaluation looking for good things in them, or is it looking for things that you might not like, or you might put them down for? It can be either way, depending on your mood and your attitude and your outlook on life and your outlook toward other people. You should, when you meet somebody, say, there's somebody that I would like to treat as good as I want them to treat me. That should be our mental approach, emotional approach, that there's somebody that is bound to be a child of God, a creation of God, and God is very loving toward them, and I need to be very loving toward them. And then as you get to know them better, you'll begin to understand more what kind of person they are, not just the immediate reaction you might see from how they look. But what kind of person are they? That takes time. But we need to give them opportunity, give them the benefit of whatever doubt might come in our minds. Let God work salvation in them. It's not our job to work salvation in each other. It's just not. You can't work it in yourself and you can't work it in anybody else. As much as you might want to at times. You can't do it. Why do we keep trying? We have to ask him to work salvation in us. And ask him to work his salvation in our friends and neighbors and all of his children. Because he's the only one that could save. He doesn't really need our help, does he? How much help were you when Christ was crucified? Not a whole lot. In fact, you had your part in causing it because it extends to all our sins. So his sacrifice is for everyone because he was of far more worth than all of us combined. So here he is giving his New Testament covenant instruction. <clears throat> Verse 5, you hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then shall you see clearly to cast out the mote out of your brother's eye. Now, there might be a time when you have yourself under control that you might more clearly help somebody. And I wasn't saying earlier that there's no time to mention something to someone. There is. But we'd better be very careful about it and diplomatic about it. Read the book of Philemon there about how Paul so carefully approached the situation where he needed to correct somebody. Now, that's a good example of that kind of approach. And yet at the other, there were other times he used no diplomacy at all. There were times he just rebuked severely, sharply. So there's a time for all of that. Sometimes we need to be just plain brought up short on something. And sometimes we need a lot of diplomacy if there's a, a character flaw or something or an approach flaw. We need to have it approached in such a way 
that we won't be defensive, but we'll accept that correction. And people get very defensive very quickly if you try to correct them. People don't like to be corrected. They don't like to be told they're wrong. That's one thing that's throughout all human beings is we don't like to be told we're wrong. So Paul is saying there, or he's showing an example of be very, very careful and diplomatic because as soon as they get defensive, the wall goes up and you're just wasting your time and your energy once that defensive mechanism cuts in. Now, if they're doing something severely wrong, like the guy having incest there in 1 Corinthians 5, that was to be dealt with in a very quick, severe, and sharp manner until the person repented because it was an outright overt sin as opposed to maybe an approach or a little something. So we, we have to learn wisdom and control. But be sure you got the beams out before you try to get their mode out. And if you do that, you'll be real slow to correct <laughs> because we all got our beams. Then he changes it a bit. <clears throat> Verse 6, Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, what is a dog here? Don't give that which is holy or good or righteous to a dog. Well, anyone who was not an Israelite in those days was considered a dog. All Gentiles, by the Jews, were considered dogs, which is uh, not really human and something that we would tend to look down upon, except unless it's our pet. But they're not on the human level. Now, in the New Testament, Christ started a church, and those people who became part of that were spiritual Jews. And any of those who were not part of that were Gentiles, spiritually speaking. So it has nothing to do with whether you're physically, by blood, an Israelite or a Gentile or some kind of mix or both. That has nothing to do with anything. The only thing that matters is are you spiritually with God as a spiritual Jew? And if you're not, you could be 100% Israelite blood and be a Gentile, spiritually speaking. In other words, Gentile is simply a term that means not with God. Spiritual Jew is a term that means with God. Race has nothing to do with it whatsoever. I imagine with blood, the only consideration, you couldn't figure it out anymore. There's been so much interbreeding over the years, there's probably not a pure anything. Mostly all that's left pure evil. <laughs> you know, that's just about what it is. So, the instruction here is only give that which is pertinent that has to do with God to those who would appreciate it and who are on that particular understanding or plane. Now, when we began to be converted and become spiritual Jews, 
We saw our relatives who were not being called. And what did we do? We had these pearls that we thought were so important, these new truths, this new understanding that was so exciting, and we wanted to share it. And who with? Our relatives first. But they were still, spiritually speaking, swine or dogs. And you were barking up the wrong tree because they turned and trampled you with their feet and rended you verbally, uh, sometimes even physically, because they did not appreciate what you had to share with them. So he's saying here, you better be very, very careful. I think we've, by now, all of us should have, hopefully learned that. But I still see it sometimes. People trying to convert their kids, trying to convert their parents, trying to convert whoever. No. That's God's business. Did we ever read John 6:44? No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. And you are not the Spirit of the Father, and you can't draw them, and they won't come because of you. So give it up. That's God's job. Who do you think you are? When you try to convert people, you are committing idolatry. You're taking God's place. That's what he's saying here. No, we're to set the example for them. Be a Christian. Let your light shine. Light doesn't generally make noise unless it's a bad fluorescent bulb. And that isn't the light causing the noise. That's the bad mechanism. A light is silent. It just does. And if they hear racket... It's the wrong thing for them to hear. If anybody is going to be brought in any way closer to God, it's going to be by your conduct and not your mouth. How long, how many decades does it take us to learn this? Because we all tried it at the beginning and some of us haven't given it up to this day. We still think we can save them from what's coming. No, you can't. Only God can. Even those who have been in the light and were in the church, when it was scattered and everybody went their own way, only 10% are going to come to do God's work here at the end. Only 10%. And he makes it very clear in the book of Haggai that he is going to be the one who stirs them to come. It's not going to be you or me or anybody else who stirs them to come. We wouldn't have a clue who to stir if we could stir them. And if we did try to stir them, we'd probably get ourselves into trouble, like we did years ago and still sometimes do. Don't try to take over God's job. You can get in trouble with God. And not only that, you might get the ones in trouble that you're actually trying to save. 
because you might give them some information, some knowledge that they do not follow and then will be condemned for. Giving them knowledge that they don't act on is dangerous for them. Truly dangerous. If you understand and don't follow through, you're in trouble. You could be doing someone a great disservice by trying to tell them the truth. And they don't act on it. You better let God do his job and you do your job. Now what is your job? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Nobody else's, yours. Help others by example and by word occasionally if you get your own beams out of the way. But you better be careful about the swine. Because that's what God considers anyone who is unconverted. They're still an unclean person spiritually. I mean, he's not putting them on the same level as dogs and pigs. That's not the way he looks at any of the human beings he's created on the earth. But he gave us the clean and the unclean animals to help us understand that we can be in a condition that is spiritually unclean or we can be clean. That's one of the biggest lessons of clean and unclean meats. Now, if you were to take it strictly chemically, a Coca-Cola is far worse for you than a piece of pork. It has more dangerous chemicals in it by far than a piece of pig. People ate pigs and all kinds of unclean animals for thousands of years and did not have heart problems, diabetes, uh, cancer, even in, well, I'll be 77 tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, even in my short life. When I was a kid, you almost never heard of diabetes. Cancer, I, I didn't know what the C word was. Heart disease, eh, some, but not much. And I knew people that ate pig three times a day, more or less. And they were healthy as you can be. And then we started refined foods and chemicals, soda pop, one of the worst things you can possibly put in your body. Now, when God tells us to take care of the temple of his spirit, our bodies, he didn't mention Coca-Cola and all these things packaged sugars and chemicals. He didn't mention those. They weren't around. But he did mention things that are harmful. Now, is pig harmful to your health? Yeah. But not nearly as much as McDonald's burger and a Coke. Not near. That isn't cheese on a cheeseburger. It's soybeans and chemicals. Is what it is. It never saw the inside of a cow. They couldn't sell it that cheap if it was milk and cream. Couldn't do it. It's just chemicals mainly. And soy, which if not 
process exactly right is a poison. So why do we keep drinking and eating this garbage when it's unclean to our bodies and is destroying our temples? One-third of Americans today will have heart trouble before they die. One-third will have cancer. And one-third will have diabetes. And some will have all three. And most of it's come about in the last 70, 80 years because of the chemicals we started using and the junk that we eat. God created us, Adam and Eve, at the beginning to be clean. Not to eat. (laughs) We're talking cannibalism now these days quite a bit. And we've got baby parts in some of our foods and drugs and cosmetics. It's getting like the days of Noah. Sad. He created us to be clean, like Adam and Eve were, spiritually. And then they sinned and became unclean. So everybody since, unless God works with them and converts them and begins to clean them up, is unclean. So I'm not putting anybody down in particular. Adam and Eve and every human being ever since have been unclean but Christ. So here we are at the Passover using him to help make us clean spiritually. That's what it's all about. You have the clean and the unclean. When he comes back, he's going to resurrect or change the clean. The unclean will be left here to be cleaned up in the millennium or the great white throne judgment. He's going to give everybody a chance at cleanliness. But he tells us in the meantime... If I've given you pearls, you had best be very, very careful what you do with those and don't give them to the unclean. Now, there is an exception to that in that he occasionally has sent prophets or ministers to preach to the world, like he sent Jonah to Nineveh, for instance. Once in a while, he assigns somebody to go do that because it's coming from him, not from them. Okay? If you decide to go straighten people out on your own, you're casting God's pearls before swine. If he commissions you to take that message, then you're taking his message from him, not from you. That's the difference. And he is going to assign his whole church here at the end, once he pulls it together, the 10%, to be a light to the world, shining from Zion. And then he's going to send two out and say, now you go tell them they're unclean and what they need to do to be cleansed. And they will be hated universally by everyone on the earth who's accepted the mark of the beast, And the only ones who will still be alive will be those who have. Anybody who won't accept it will either be in a place of safety, protected by God, or be killed, be dead. You either accept it or you don't. That's all there is to it. But us personally, as individuals, do not need to do God's job. Let him send whom he will, when he will to take care of that. And that includes 
your children and your parents and everybody you're involved with. It's his job. Don't be presumptuous. Don't try to do his work for him. You don't want to get yourself in trouble by trying to help somebody out of trouble, spiritually speaking. There are people who jump in a river to try to save somebody who's drowning, and they both drown. There's a time to jump in and save somebody. There's a time when it wouldn't do a bit of good anyway. So we need to be able to judge and apprise those situations. Okay, then he gives us some positive instruction in verse 7. He's told us to trust him in the end of chapter 6, at least the last half of it, to have faith, to know everything will be okay if we trust him. Then he gives us some instruction about what we're to do. If you have needs, ask. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. So he gives several different things here we could do toward the same end. Our purpose is we need something from God. So he says, go about this in any way you can. Give several examples of what can be done to get the kind of communication with God that we need to accomplish what it is that we need. So, Ask is the simplest way in prayer. Ask him. And you have to be seeking as well. Now, if you need wisdom, you can ask God for wisdom. And he doesn't just put a funnel in your head and pour in so much necessarily. But where has he told us wisdom is? This book. So if you need wisdom, you can ask him for wisdom And then you can open his book and read about how he does things, which are always wise, and do things as you see them written here. So you ask, and then you seek. You try to find. What is the answer? How do I find it? You know, the answer to any problem in life, no matter what it is, is in this book. It's an instruction book for how to live as a human being. So whatever problem you face, the answer is in here. But you have to dig it out sometimes. Now, the easiest, quickest way, maybe, is jump back to Proverbs. Gives you all kinds of things about how to handle certain situations. If the roof is leaking, fix it. Don't sit there and complain about the water dripping on your head. You know, you need, you need the water to quit running in. Well, the answer's in Proverbs. Go fix the roof. Lazy. Well, I mean, that's just the first one that comes to mind. There's a thousand in there about how to handle situations. And in the rest of the Bible, throughout is woven how God would handle things, how men have handled them for good and for bad, what turned out good, what turned out bad, and why. It's all in here. The answers are all there for marriage, for child-rearing, for uh, employment, uh, 
difficulties, whatever it is, anything in human life, the answer is in here. So ask God to guide you to the answer, and then you seek it. And this is the first and the primary place to seek it. And there are sometimes you can ask somebody else who may understand. Sometimes you say, you know, I'm, I'm sure having a problem with this. Have you faced this or have you seen this? What do I do? And sometimes we have to swallow our pride, our ego, our vanity, and ourself and ask somebody. You know, we, we tend to ask the wrong people. Sometimes we don't ask God. And how do people try to resolve their issues? Well, let's see. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drunk. I can't control booze. I'll go ask somebody how to solve this problem. I'll go down to Joe's bar and sit on this stool next to this stool, and I'll ask that guy, how do I handle my alcohol problem? Well, he'll tell you the best way to handle it is sit here and have a drink with me. Birds of a feather tend to flock together. We find people who have the same problem we do, and we get with them. That's not going to solve anything. We just become more alike and have the problem worse. Duh. But that's what people tend to do. You're having problems with the marriage? Oh, let's sympathize with each other. <laughs> you know? Let's get together. You're having problems. I'm having problems. And we'll both not fix them because neither one of us knows the answer, obviously, or it would have been fixed by now. Go to somebody who fixed theirs. They might have a clue how to help you fix yours. But we don't do that because, A, we may not really want to know the solution because it may be difficult for us to accomplish. We may also not want to admit to somebody that hasn't got the problem or who has solved it that we still have it because it makes us feel small that somebody else might have fixed theirs. Whatever the problem can be, any kind of problem. Go to somebody who has it under control and you might learn something. Go to somebody just like you, you won't learn a thing. Might even make things worse. Because you might take on some of their problems and they might take on some of yours. God is the answer. He knows the answers to all of them. It's just that we don't sometimes like his solution. We want to go on like we are. But we want the problem to go away. It's like with children. Everybody just loves an obedient child who doesn't scream and rare and be spoiled and do what it wants to do in spite of whatever its parents say. Or if it wants something at the store, it won't shut up till you give it to it. Nobody likes to see that kind of stuff and disrespect. They don't like to see it. It's, it's bothersome. It's noisy. It's, it's chaotic. It's confusion. But you start telling them the solution to the problem and how to have a well-trained, disciplined kid who will do what he says or what you say and not cry and pout and make on to get what he wants because he knows it works. They like 
the children to be respectful and lovable and kind and sweet, but they don't like what it takes to get them there. They don't like the solution. And it's that trouble with marriages, with children, with employment, with whatever. Sometimes you have to change what you do. Change your thinking and your acting, and things will get better. But if you blame it on somebody else, you're not going to fix them. I mean, maybe they are the problem. And you telling them that the problem doesn't solve the problem. Generally makes it worse. But if you admit, this is not fun, that you might be part of the problem, and you start working on solving your part of it, then they might see that, and it might help them to begin to change too. You never know. Might not. But it might. But work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own part of the problem, and then at least half of it will be better. Got improvement. Now, they may improve and they may not. Then it won't wind up in losing the job or the mate or whatever. It can happen. And sometimes it is mostly one-sided. But it's never completely one-sided. We all have our part. So ask God and then seek answers where you'll find the true answers, the true solutions. And you shall find, knock, and it'll be opened. Bang on God's door. <laughs> Bang on some expert's door and find an answer. And then he explains his attitude. He says, do it this way, and then he explains what he is, who he is. Because we got to get that through our thick heads, is who God is. That's what counts. For everyone that asks, receives. And he that seeks, finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. If we really want a communication, a relationship with God, and we go through what is necessary to do that, he is bound by his own rule here and his own conduct and character to do it. Seek and you will find. Now, if you don't seek, you may not ever find unless he knocks you down like he did Paul and says, straighten up, Paul. I have a use for you. Whether you like it or not, <laughs> you're going to be blind here for a while, and then let's get this all figured out. Sometimes he does it that way. God commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. Well, Jonah knew that the prophecies were that the Assyrian and Nineveh were going to attack and take Israel captive. And that God would then destroy them for what they'd done. He didn't want Nineveh to repent and be blessed by God. He wanted them destroyed. So when God says, go re preach repentance to Nineveh, Jonah says, nah, none of me. 
So God prepared a great fish. It wasn't a whale. Some specific thing he prepared. And they tossed Jonah overboard, and it swallowed him up. And he rolled around in there for three days and three nights and got spit out on the beach. And said, think, oh, where's the road road to Nineveh? (laughs) I'm going. So sometimes God decides to call us in spite of ourselves. But he does say that if you want him and you want his answers, if you seek him and you knock and you ask, He will not deny it. If that's truly what you want, he will open it up to you. For what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? We've all had kids, most of us. I've had mine ask me for bread or meat or not celery too often maybe, but bread or meat or potatoes or whatever they wanted. I've had them ask for it. I've never given them a rock yet. And you haven't either. Because we want our children to have things that they want and that are good for them. So if they ask for something that is okay for them, we'll give it to them. Or if he asks a fish, we'll give him a snake. No, you haven't done that either. He's using some pretty contrasting examples here to show that we as parents want to give our children things that are good for them and that they enjoy and everybody be happy. That's what we like to do with our children. So that's what he uses to explain to us how he is with us. Now there'll be people that tell you God is mean and ornery and angry and doesn't like people and wants to see us all destroyed and go to hell. That's what Baptist preachers tell you every Sunday. God's going to send you to hell. God's going to get you for that, or whatever expression they use. That's not God's attitude. If you then, being evil, that's what we are. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things who can know it. We are not a mixture of good and evil. By nature, we are evil. Selfishness is evil. And by nature, we are utterly selfish. We're utterly selfish from the moment we take our first breath of air and start screaming about how we feel or how cold we are or what what it is we don't like. And we're concerned with ourselves and self-centeredness ever after, unless modified by the Spirit of God. So if you then, being evil, and that's what a human being is by nature, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? He's not selfish. He's outgoing and giving by nature. He is loving by nature. Now, he has given us a certain emotion and feeling toward our children, why? Well, 
partially because they're our children. And because they're our children, they're good children. They're lovable children. It's like kind of like a dog's, you know. Most people don't really care for somebody else's dog. It's got hair on it and it gets in their face and poops on their lawn. And you don't like somebody else's dog. You like your dog. It can lick you in the face, I suppose. I never allowed that. I just never cared for kissing dogs. Thank you. But just because it's your dog, it's a better dog than their dog. And just because it's your kid, it's a better kid than some other kid. Because we have that innate self-centeredness. And God doesn't have that. So he says, you, having the nature that you have, still love your kids. And I, having a far better nature than you do, love you and your kids more than you do. And there again is when we preempt God and become presumptuous when we think that we can do better for our kids than God can. He knows when they need to be called. He knows the best time and the best way. So we're playing God when we try to do his job. And playing God is what is known as idolatry and putting yourself and your children ahead of God. He says very clearly, you have to put him ahead of your children, your wife, your husband, everything. He has to be first. And he only allows two reasons for divorce in the New Testament. <coughs> Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament, you could put her away for any reason. Any reason. Just do it and get you another one or two. Out of the hardness of our hearts. But in the New Testament, he said for adultery, porneia, only. Just that one instance. <coughs> because it's unfaithfulness that breaks the relationship. And then it got modified to include one other reason in 1 Corinthians. And that is, if God calls one of the mates and doesn't call the other one, he takes it on himself at the problems that that's going to create in the marriage. And he says, if they will, if, if I call one and this one's converted and I don't call that one, <clears throat> as long as he allows you or she to worship God in peace, then you should remain married. But if he gives you or she gives you, a hassle and trouble and grievousness over you obeying God, then you can actually divorce that person and remarry, not bound to them anymore, a total legitimate divorce before God, and marry someone else only in the church. Because since God did not call that person and they give you a hassle about obeying him, you don't go from the frying pan into the fire and marry somebody else that could give you the same problem. No, if that is dissolved because of spiritual persecution, essentially, then you can marry but only someone who is also converted. 
So God makes another exception there other than unfaithfulness because the spiritual situation is more important than the physical. So he takes upon that upon himself. And you're not supposed to divorce them if they will allow you to obey God without a hassle. But if they're, if they're affecting your salvation by the way they act toward you, then God says, dissolve it, get out of there, and find somebody in the church if you do indeed want to get married again. So he loves us, and he's so concerned about us that he even makes a, a concession like that as an addition to his law based on the fact that now we have a new covenant and he's not calling everybody into it. So he takes it upon himself because he loves the converted one so much that he wants them to be in his kingdom. And if there's anything physical on this earth that's preventing that, that has to go. For that your right eye or your right hand or your mate, it has to go. He loves us that much. He's only going to give us that which is good. Verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This summarizes God's law. Is that you treat other people the way you want to be treated. And that's the simple question we can ask ourselves as we go through life day by day. Am I treating that person the way I would want that person to treat me? And you might find that once in a while we come up short of that. Once in a while, and a while sometimes isn't very long. Because it's easy to treat somebody worse than you want to be treated. It's just real easy to do. And it's hard to treat them as equals. And that's evidenced by the fact that we find fault with them. We don't like to find fault with ourselves even though we might know they're there. And we certainly don't like someone else to find fault with us. Well, if we don't like them to find fault with us, why do we find fault with them? God says, I'm going to treat you just like you treat them. You fall, find fault with your neighbor, I'm going to find fault with you. Truly scary. That sums up the Law and the Prophets. Everything they talked about right there. So he says then, enter in at the straight gate. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And everybody finds that one. That one's easy to find. But narrow and difficult is the way that leads to life. Not easy. Protestantism teaches you it's easy. Just believe on Jesus and you're saved. That's all it takes. <laughs> ah, that it could be so easy, but it's not. It's very difficult. It's very narrow. Hard to find. Seek. Knock. Look for it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. There are people who will treat you nice and make you think they're wonderful people, 
But what they're really thinking inside can be totally different than the persona that you're looking at. So he says, be careful. We're not to be finding fault and looking for trouble in people, but at the same time, we need to be aware that there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And even if we find one, what do we do? We just don't listen to them. We don't spend time with them. But we don't treat them badly. See? We don't necessarily find fault with them. If, if that's obviously what they are, just stay away. And that's what Paul said about the guy committing the incest. Don't have anything to do with him. Don't even eat with him. Don't shake his hand and say, how are you, incestuous brother? Get away from them. Don't have anything to do with them. And then when they repent, accept them back. Well, that guy did repent of a grievous sin. And then they didn't want him. They wanted him to, Paul said, put him away. And then when that happened, they put him clear away. And didn't allow for repentance. We got to do that. <coughs> you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? No. <coughs> we have to not judge, not condemn, not find fault with, but at the same time, we have to look for good fruits. See, you're looking for the good. That's what Philippians 4, 8 is all about, is looking for the good. Fruits of the Spirit are a good thing. Works of the flesh are a bad thing. So in somebody, you're not looking for the works of the flesh, which is what we tend to do. We're looking for the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, all those things. That's what we're looking for. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. And if you see somebody who's always negative and always putting down and always uh, in that kind of a mood or attitude, and that's the kind of, can you call it fruit, that they are producing, you avoid that. You don't be around it. You, you try to stay away from it. For every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. But see, that's judgment. God is going to cut those down and burn them up if they will not do what's right. It's not your job. It's not my job. We're to look for the good. If we see evil, though, then we can stay away from that. Don't treat them bad. Just stay away. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. It'll be good or it'll be bad. If it's good, love them. Spend time with them. If it's bad, stay away from them. What do you do when you have a crack in a rotten egg? Or you reach in to get an apple out and you stick your fingers in it. You get away from it as fast as you can. That's what you do. So that which is evil, recognize Stay away. If it's good fruit, then enjoy and appreciate it. Verse 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. 
doesn't do any good to claim to be Christian unless you do the things he says. Because you're not one, just in name only. And then he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in your name cast out devils and in your name done many wonderful works? Aren't we Christian? And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Now that emphasizes what I just said above. God is going to get away from that which is iniquitous. He tells us in Isaiah that he turns his face away from those who will sin and turns it to those who will obey. So God is not going to be around people and be, try to be friends with people who will not obey and follow his way. He will cut them down and burn them up like a fire. Those who will do his way and love each other and love him, he'll keep around forever. Because we can live together in peace and security and in love. That's what he's looking for. So if you are constantly negative and putting down and judging and condemning and not treating people the way you would want to be treated, then he'll say, I don't know you. I only know those who are doing what I say. So all that we've been going through in these last umpteen sermons... Unless we do them, we're not going to be there. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Listen to these things in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Do them, and your house is on a rock, the rock, Christ. And the rain descended... The floods came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock, or the rock. End of chapter 6, remember? Trust me, have faith in me, believe in me, don't worry, don't be anxious, don't fear, I will take care of you. You build on that, your spiritual temple, your house, will not wash away won't blow down. Everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now those storms that he's talking about are now proliferating around the world and getting worse by the day and by the week and by the month. Are they going to knock our house down? Are we going to say, I guess I better take the vaccine so I can go shop at Walmart? Or are we going to say, I'm going to obey God, and I guess I won't be able to buy and sell, I'll stay home. Do you trust him to take care of you? When Satan says, come my way, and you can buy and sell. You can buy food. You can buy clothes. You can have a house. You can buy a car if you just accept this chip to do it with. And God says if you accept that chip, you're dead. That's it. What are you going to do? I'm not getting that shot. 
I must have about eight people hold me down and poke me with it. And I'm going to try to stay in the place where they won't do that. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Nobody had ever heard anything like this before. They didn't hear from the Pharisees and the Sadducees at all. This was something new. They'd never heard. This was the new covenant, the new agreement, the new rules, the new way of thinking and acting. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He didn't say these things like people picture Jesus. <laughs> he said it with authority, with conviction, with meaning, and he meant it. And he means it to us. So let's wrap that up then. Uh, and we'll go to something new during the Passover series.